The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Mara Cunningham, and I'm a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm speaking today with Jeremy Goldcorn, founder of the research firm Donway and co-host of the Seneca podcast. Born and raised in South Africa, Jeremy lived in China for 20 years. Earlier in 2015, he relocated to Nashville, Tennessee with his family. Jeremy, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your work. It's my pleasure. Uh, so first, I thought we could start by talking about uh, how it is that you wound up in China in 1995, and what did you do during your first few years in the country? Um, well, sometime when I was at college, and I didn't study Chinese, I, I was an English literature major, um, I started to get interested in East Asia. Maybe it was a trip to Malaysia that I did when I was at school that kind of really sparked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just China seemed like the most sort of um, different place. It, it seemed so completely different. You know, I, I didn't understand anything about it. Mm-hmm. And South Africa had been a very anti-communist country. I didn't know anyone who'd ever been to mainland China. Um, and this just sparked some kind of you know interest i suppose in some ways it was chasing the exotic which probably leads a lot of people a lot of foreigners <laughs> to go right. to china um so after college i went to london uh to try and make a bit of money and look for a job in china mm-hmm. and so i did a, a course uh, about uh, teaching english as a foreign language mm-hmm. and then looked for a teaching job and that's how i wound up in china I was working for a factory abb big Swiss, swedish engineering firm teaching their managers english wow and so for how long did you do that i did the teaching for about just over a year and then i had a a job in their training department they called it for about a year where I basically just wasted corporate money on <laughs> various nonsenses. Um, and then I took a long bike ride around China and Pakistan and Nepal and then went back to Beijing and ended up working in, in media. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell our, our listeners a little bit about Donway? So that got started as a blog, <clears throat> right? And then it got turned into a research firm over the yeah. years. So. What were your goals when you first started it, and how did it come to change into what it's become? Well, um, when I started it, uh, you know, um, I'd worked in the Chinese media, both English language and Chinese language publications of one kind or another for a while. Um, and what was happening in the early years of, of the 21st century was that there was this amazing um, explosion of uh, new types of media. And... Um, a kind of a freedom that one didn't see, you know, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. People writing all kinds of things, you know, blogging was getting going. Uh, newspapers like, uh, you know, the Southern Metropolis uh, uh, group of, of newspapers, the Nanfang Zhongmuo group, were um, uh, doing investigative stories. It, it seemed to be uh, a very exciting time in Chinese media, but it wasn't really being covered very well in English. Um, and so I sort of thought this was an interesting thing to write about. And because blogging technology suddenly made it easy for anyone to become a publisher, I thought there was an opportunity to write about things that weren't really being very well covered in in English. Mm -hmm. So that was the original inspiration. Um, And then we, you know, it grew more people, you know, uh, I, I... 
I had uh, other people join me, you know, primarily a guy named Joel Martinson, who's a really excellent translator. Uh, we started shooting videos, uh, and you know, before YouTube was blocked, we could we had these these short documentary videos, um, and that was, uh, you know, I tried to make it work as a media platform, but of course, I was eventually defeated by the censorship system. <laughs> it was blocked in two thousand and nine, right. and then at that point, we basically were faced with the choice to either shut it out, you know, close it, or uh, carry on doing what had, in fact, been making money for already a few years, which is research work. Mm -hmm. So that's what it still does now. Still does now, yeah. So you've been, I mean, you just talked about having Donway shut down by the censors. You've been watching the Chinese internet for two decades now, close to it. Um, so could you pick out maybe, like, three notable landmarks in... Or, or turning points in the history of the Chinese internet or China's usage of the internet? What do you think have been some of the really significant moments of the past 20 years? Huh. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I would say that, um, I mean, the, 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 the start of the Chinese consumer internet in 1995-96 has got to be one of them. Right. Um, then I'd probably say, uh, you know, I mean, this is somebody I've interviewed a lot, but uh, this uh, female sex blogger, she's sometimes called okay. Muzume, started writing a blog, and uh, before people really knew much about the term, they were already, you know, gaining popularity in the U.S. But in China, it was relatively new. Um, and so, in 2003, uh, when she wrote this this post about an encounter with this rock star. In, in a back alley in Guangzhou that kind of went viral uh, mm -hmm. before that term was even very common. <laughs> Suddenly, every journalist in China knew about blogs, and, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of sparked this extraordinary, um, you know, flowering of, 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 of exp free expression on the Chinese Internet. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I would say 2003, I mean, I would, for sensationalist purposes, connected with her, and, I mean, it's not just sensationalist, there's some reality there, but that was kind of the year when I think social media actually started to really mean something in, right. in China. And um, then the third moment, I would say, would be the Wenzhou train crash in the summer of uh, 2011, uh, and I would say that was the end of social media as we knew it from 2003 to 2011 because the the government got spooked uh, by the fact that they completely lost control of the narrative about the Wenzhou train crash. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's intensified under Xi Jinping, but since then, uh, you know, social media has been much more strictly controlled and has been seen as a, a force of subversion. Right. Um, well, today, I mean, social media in China basically means Weixin or WeChat, like that people have really moved from Weibo yeah. over to that platform. So how do you think that Weixin seems to have totally permeated the Chinese mobile yeah. Internet landscape? So how is it how is it changing the way people are communicating in China or even how they're like living their lives? Well, yeah, that's true. Weixin is is sort of, you know, anybody who basically has, you know, one cent to rub, you know, <laughs> one cent in their pocket is on Weixin. Right. Um, I, you know, in some ways it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's destroyed the public fora that, 
existed on on you know the Twitter like Weibo where and blog the old, old long form blogging where people would write for a public mm-hmm. and and people have retreated into groups you know right. essentially private groups and things cancel go viral because people will spread stuff but it's much mm-hmm. more difficult for things to go viral so I think it's sort of changed the way uh, the nature of of the the sort of public debate on on you know issues of the day. Um, I think, like everywhere in the world, it, it, you know, I mean, they're both positives and negatives. You know, uh, people do spend an awful lot, lot of time on their phones, and you know, <laughs> I, it's not all good. Right. It's amazing when you're riding in the subway, you look down the car, and every single yeah. person in the car is staring at their phone. Nobody's really talking with each other. Anymore, exactly. Exactly. Or even really looking around at their surroundings and seeing what's Absolutely. going on. I mean, yeah. there's a word. I think it came from Taiwan originally that I really like. Is the what is it? The Tozu. You know, mm-hmm. the, the tribe with of people down. with their heads yeah. down. Because that's right. kind of everybody now. Right. You know? And it, you know, it's difficult to have a decent dinner conversation. I mean, not only in China, but China's yeah, it's just more, as much a problem here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe a little bit more intense in China. I don't know. Right. Well, you've been involved with a project out of Australian National University called the China Story. Um, the China right. Story website and the China Story yearbook. Can you talk a little bit about that and explain what it is? Sure. So um, the uh, when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister of Australia, he uh, uh, gave funding for the establishment of the Australian Centre on China in the World, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a, a centre dedicated to researching China and Chineseness and Chinese culture and all its different facets from, you know, uh, mainland communism to uh, diaspora Chinese mm-hmm. culture from Hong Kong to Taiwan to, you know, New York City's Chinatown and uh, everything uh, that is, is sort of connected with the Chinese culture. Um, the founder is Jeremy Barme uh, of the center, the founding director, who's a, you know, a, 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 a notable China scholar. Um, the the project I'm most involved with is the China story. So there's a website, um, and it is trying to tell different kinds of Chinese stories. Mm. And some of them are, in fact, the stories that the government likes to tell, the the, the, China, the, the mainland government, you know, the, the PRC, the Communist Party, uh, and some of them aren't. They are, you know, it, uh, and that's... Uh, the the um, the aim of it is to try to talk about China in as many different ways as possible and tell all kinds of different stories. Um, and then we do a yearbook. So uh, this is the third one, the 2014 one, and we're working on the 2015 one, mm-hmm. um, which uh, has essays by a variety of scholars and, and researchers and uh, includes all kinds of material about what happened in that year. Uh, and it's an attempt to... You know, give a sense of of uh, both the sort of current affairs. You know, what happened in that year, but also mm-hmm. the the intellectual debates and the the discourse about China in in, in that given year. So one of the big news stories this year, or actually in this past week, has been that internet mega firm Alibaba is buying the South right. China Morning Post. So a lot of you know a lot of people who are China watchers are really worried that Alibaba, once they take control of the South China Morning Post, the newspaper is going to water down its coverage and attempt to curry favor with Beijing. Yeah. 
what do you think about it? I, I, I mean, I, I don't see why else they bought it except to curry favor with right. Beijing. I mean, you know, it's a newspaper in an age where it's very difficult to make money out of newspapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, uh, the the statement by Zhou Tsai, who's the what's his, his title as CEO, uh, you know, is the basically um, in charge of running the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, it basically said that he said that you know. When China is covered negatively, that negatively in, uh, impacts Alibaba, and therefore he would like you know to tell more positive stories about China. Um, but I think it should be noted that you know there have been criticism of the South China Morning Post for years now that they've been sort of toning down their criticism of right. China. They're not what they once were. No, basically, and you know. Um, I can't remember who was writing it. There's always been a, a newspaper of the establishment. It used mm-hmm. to be a, a newspaper of the colonial establishment, and right. you know now it's a, a newspaper of the, the new establishment. The so, establishment. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's any worse for Hong Kong, but I mean, certainly, I think you know, I, I wouldn't expect the South China Morning Post to be uh, breaking too many stories that are critical of the Chinese government in the future. Right. Um, I just, you know. That doesn't make any business sense for Alibaba, and Alibaba is, you know, it's a business. It's not a, a, a project aimed at uh, seeking truth. Right. Well, so I know that in addition to a lot of media projects, you're also you've also been involved in a company called Great Wall Fresh, and I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that and what it does. Sure, it's not a company. Uh, it, it is uh, basically. I used to spend a lot of time. Uh, Walking in the mountains around Beijing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, I would just get in a car and drive and kind of find a place to walk and then walk. And one particular village, uh, there's a really nice stretch of the Great Wall in Hebei, uh, not too far from the famous tourist site Badaling, right. about two mountain, two 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 mountains over from Badaling, uh, and there's this. Beautiful piece of, you know, uh, unrestored Great Wall. It was completely unregulated. Mm-hmm. And I spent a day walking on this and then uh, dropped down to the valley below and found this village. Um, and I happened to walk into one of two, they call them Nongjiayuan, you know, like a peasant family uh, kind of hotel restaurant things uh, that were in that valley. Uh, and um, they were both sort of aimed at Chinese tourists, uh, photographers, and um, uh, especially, but a very nice family. Mm-hmm. Uh, their surname is Chen, and the the village is called uh, uh, Chen Pu, which is like Chen Family Fortress, and most of the people in the village <laughs> are surname Chen. Right. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, uh, they were just nice and they were good cooks. They made really nice uh, food and they were just really friendly and sweet. So I started, and, and the wall, the great wall around this is, is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few different walks. So I started going there regularly and they started asking me if I could help them to attract more business, which I was reluctant initially because I liked my little secret undiscovered <laughs> valley. Um, but eventually they sort of convinced me. So um, I made a website and started kind of spreading the word amongst foreigners mm-hmm. um, and helped them sort of develop up a menu and figure out how to you know charge for things and um, uh, so then they that, that business took off really and I mean now I don't do really do anything I just uh, maintain the website mm-hmm. um, and they uh, are, it has a, a reservation form uh, and they manage the whole business themselves um, and so it was just kind of a personal project 
um, and they're really a great family. And if you in Beijing and want to go to the Great Wall, it's a really nice uh, place to go. Right, away from the tourist hordes and、yeah. battling. Right. Yeah, that might be changing. There's, you know, the、uh, on the other side of the wall is Beijing. They're trying to. Uh, you know, I, they might mess it up. The, the、right. <laughs> well, and as Beijing expands outward farther and farther, yeah. yeah, it's going to swallow up all this. And interestingly, the Shaolin Temple Holding Company, which is this, you know, company mega, mega corporation, you、right. know, run by like some evil, you know, Buddhist monk,、right. <laughs> businessman guy,、uh, has been trying to take over the valley, and、mm-hmm. they've already sold some real estate a little bit further down the valley. So you know. Development might ruin it yet. Right. Well, I'm afraid we have so much more that we could talk about, but we are at the end of our time. So thank you very much, Jeremy, for talking with me、thank、today. Thank you for having me. Thank you.